Blog Talk Radio. Hello, and welcome to Small Business Digest Radio. My name is Don Mazzella, and I am your host for a program devoted to identifying strategies and suggestions to help small business managers increase profits, add sales, better manage cash flow, improve employee management, and streamline operations. Our guests are other entrepreneurs and experts offering their solutions to the problems and opportunities facing small business leaders. Our aim in each program is to provide one or two thought-provoking ideas or suggestions. So follow us on Twitter at hashtag 2SBDigest or at our website at www.smallbusinessdigest.net. You know, somebody uh, uh, yesterday said to me I should really uh, uh, jazz up that opening. But I was, and I'm listening to it today, and I, I realize it's what I want to say. Maybe I have to jazz it up a little bit more. But we have a guest today that uh, maybe can help me with that and a few other things. Tom Cates is CEO of Sales Equity and Brookside Consulting. He wants to talk to us about a lot of subjects, but uh, um but before we do anything else, we always ask our guests to tell us a little bit about themselves. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Don. Really excited to be here and excited to talk to your listeners. Um, sure, let me start by telling you a little bit about myself. Uh, I'm an engineer by training, so I have a very sort of logical, quantitative background. I started my career, boy, 30-plus years ago now as a salesperson for IBM, uh, I left IBM and went to the Wharton School of University of Pennsylvania, got my MBA, uh, moved up to the Boston area with a big consulting firm, did that for a number of years, joined a small consulting firm, and then about 15 years ago, got the entrepreneurial bug like most people do, and founded the Brookside Group, which is my consulting firm, dedicated to the concept of how do we help people grow their revenue, how do we help them grow their top-line business. And then about two years ago, we took some of the interesting work we had done with a number of big clients and small clients, helping them grow, and we turned it into a software application called Sales Equity, and I founded a second company called SalesEquity.com. And today, we're having a ball with both of them. Both have been, uh, let's see, Brookside Group has now been an Inc. 5000 fastest-growing private company for six years in a row, and we're looking forward to Sales Equity hitting that list later this year as well. So excited to be here and looking forward to talking and see if I can help some of your listeners out there. Okay. Tell us what sales equity does and um, uh, how it helps them and what problem it solves. Sure. Um, You know, to, to put a provocative thought out there, as a starting point, my guess is I could find 33% growth in each of your listeners' businesses right now without them ever having to find another customer. Sales equity is designed as a philosophy and a process and ultimately a product that helps clients build and grow their revenue through organic growth. Um, As we've worked with a lot of companies, from small companies to large companies, I usually see three big problems companies are facing. They compete backwards, as I like to say, 
they compete on the wrong value add, and they compete for averages and not one-to-one. Sales equity was designed to accomplish dramatic improvements in each one of those areas. Well, will you describe each of those areas first? Sure. When I talk about it, I believe many, many marketers have it wrong. They've got it backwards. Um, And by that, what I mean is they compete backwards. If you have the latest and greatest product, something nobody else on this planet has, and you're in your early growth mode, then great, you ought to be competing for acquisition, new clients, because nobody has your product, right? Go get it. On the other hand, 99% of the businesses out there compete in very mature, very competitive marketplaces. You know, whether you're an insurance broker or an accountant or an ad agency or you run a retail store, everybody's got these products. It's not like you just invented insurance brokerage last week. And so if you think about it, you could either compete by acquiring new customers, you could compete by expanding the relationship you have with your existing customers, and you can compete by keeping your existing customers from leaving you, what I always call acquisition, expansion, or retention. Unfortunately, almost every business is focused on acquisition. That's the exciting part, right? We get a new name, we get a new lead, we get a new contact, we close a new sale. All of our systems are built for that. But as I said, that's really expensive. The most productive and the most uh, valuable way for business to compete today is to flip that around. Compete on retention first, expansion second, and only then, once you've got those two nailed, should you really worry about acquisition. As I said, if you've got the latest and greatest new product, sure, go focus on acquisition. But for 99% of the businesses out there, Competing on acquisition is just a fool's folly in many respects. If you think about it, if you're an insurance broker, for you to get a new client, somebody has to lose a client. Everybody has an insurance broker. That's tough sledding. On the other hand, if you focus on retaining your customers first, you know who they are. They're in your Rolodex. You already have a relationship with them. So start by retaining them, then worry about how do you expand a relationship with them and only then should you worry about getting new customers. But it's tough. I mean, even here at Brookside and Sales Equity, we always get real excited every time the bell rings, right, and we get a new lead coming in the door. I get it. But let me just toss a number at you. If you started 2016 with 100 customers and have an 80% retention rate like many companies do, five years from now you've only got 41 of those same customers doing business with you. You've got to sell 59 new customers just to break even over the next five years. We have some clients that are in the 80, uh, excuse me, 96, 97% retention rate. Over that same five-year period of the 100 they start with this year, they're going to have 86 of them still with them next year. That's what I'm talking about by focusing backwards. It's like trying to fill a bathtub with a drain open. You just can't do it. So that's kind of the first thing we work on, is making sure they're competing in the right direction. Should you be focused on acquisition, or should you really be focused on retention, then expansion, and only then acquisition? Hmm. Uh, that's fascinating. Keep going. Sure. So what's the next step? You, 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 the second uh, area. Retention is first. Is a, uh, Tom, let sure. me interrupt you a minute. On the board is someone from the Dallas area. It should not be on the board, but um, but according to my schedule, 
but I'm going to put them on. Or um, welcome to the show. Um, will you identify yourself? I have a two one four number here. Hello. Oh, hey Don, this is Jared Green. I'm I am just hanging on for the next portion of the show. Uh, I'm actually going into the Lincoln Tunnel right now, so if you can give me just a couple of minutes. No, no, uh, I'll be ready. No, it, I just expected the 201 number. I'm so glad. Don't worry about it. We'll cut back to you later. Um, so Sounds great. Uh, Thank you. See, Tom, sometimes uh, when you assume something, uh, uh, Jared lives in Montclair but has a, a Dallas telephone number. <laughs> so It's uh, just like life. you gotta you got to dance, bob, and weave as, as life goes on. Uh, anyway, he's our next guest, and I want you to stay on for it. And I hated to interrupt your uh, 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 presentation because I, I find it fascinating, and I couldn't agree with you more. So, Tom, now, you said, and retention is important, but how do you do it? Well, so now you get into the second area where I see people kind of getting it wrong, is they compete on the wrong aspect of value-add. And by th- what that I mean is, if you think about it, your client is going to give you some money in exchange for some product or service that you're offering. If you were to break that product or service down into what I call three equities, there is what I call product equity, the specs of the product. Um, think of a pure commodity, a bushel of corn, right? It's a, it's a bushel of corn. It weighs 56 pounds. It's fresh. It's corn. That's exactly what the product equity is worth. And by the way, it's worth about five bucks. Now, you could take that product and wrap it in a brand and create brand equity. Um, consumer businesses, think of, uh, think of headache medicine. You could go to your local drugstore and buy Tylenol, which is going to be 500 milligrams of acetaminophen. You could buy the store brand, which is 500 milligrams of acetaminophen. The product equity, if you will, are, is the exact same. They're the exact same pill in each bottle. Yet one says Tylenol and charges six bucks. The other chart says CVS and charges three bucks. Tylenol spends billions of dollars to get you to believe that there is something above the product equity. There's something in the brand Tylenol. Um, some people believe it. Some people don't. Some people pay three bucks and just get product equity. Some people pay six bucks and get both the product and the brand. But again, that's great if you're one of these very large multinationals and can afford to compete on branding. Very expensive game. What if you are that insurance broker I mentioned earlier? Are you going to compete your local brokerage name against KPMG or Price Waterhouse? You know? Tough, tough business to go after. Um, not every firm can compete on that. And so whether you're an accounting firm or an insurance broker or a law firm or you have a retail shop, maybe you want to make the next great cola. Are you going to try to compete with Coca-Cola and Pepsi? Really tough. And so while some people can add that layer of brand equity, most people can't create enough brand equity to be worthwhile their investment. So that leaves you with, what do I do if I'm trying to grow my business? There's a third equity out there, what we call sales equity, which is the value that's brought by the people involved in the deal. Think about it. 
if your insurance broker went out of business tomorrow, Don, would you care? Or would you just go find another one? Many insurance brokers struggle to create enough sales equity where you actually care about that individual person. On the other hand, maybe if your accountant or if your attorney got went out of business tomorrow, that's a very different story. You got That's really tough. You've got to go start a whole new trusted advisor relationship. Or if your attorney left their firm and went to a new one, would you go with your attorney and take less brand equity? Or would you stay with the brand and say, I'll take the next attorney on the line? Most people would go with the people involved in the deal. And that's what we see where great companies are able to compete now. It's really tough to compete on product equity, right? There's only going to be one low-cost provider in every business, and many businesses are selling the same thing. You're an insurance broker. You're selling someone else's insurance product. Heck, if you're my accountant, I can't even tell if you've done my taxes correctly. And so I can't evaluate the product. My accountant doesn't have a great brand. They're not one of the big four. But I do trust my accountant implicitly. He is my my trusted advisor. I call him up for advice, and that's what I think. On second thing is you got to figure out how to. And what we see is if you are selling a product that is just a pure commodity, corn, then sell on price, compete on product equity, be really efficient, be cheap at what you do. If you're selling in the B2C consumer market and can build a brand, you ought to do that, recognizing it's expensive. On the other hand, if you have the opportunity where your people are involved in the deal, where they are providing some level of service, they're helping to customize an order, they're guaranteeing assurance of delivery, you've got account teams on the phone. If you focus on that sales equity piece, Get your people to become the trusted advisors of their clients. Now you can really differentiate yourself and win. You're you're absolutely right. I mean, as you're saying this, I'm I'm uh, listening. My accountant happens to be my trusted advisor for 36 years. I don't know what I'm going to do when he retires. Probably there you go. Right. With him. Right. Um, and it's probably not about the product. I mean, again, I don't know what I, – I can't evaluate whether my accountant's done my taxes. I'll often ask people, you know, if their accountant any good, and everybody says yes. And I say, well, how do you know? And their answer is, well, I haven't been audited. Well, so the standard of performance is we don't go to jail? No, it, the real value that our accountants, our attorneys, our auto mechanics, the people who work with us bring – is that sales equity, that trust. They are our trusted advisors. We bring them our problems and say, hey, Don, can you help me with this? And often you'll know you're that trusted advisor when your clients do bring their problems as opposed to, hey, I need a price on 1,000 widgets. Right. If they're asking for a price, they've already figured out what they need. They don't need your advice at that point. All they need is a good price. And that really tees me up with the last one, where people, the third area people get it wrong, is they tend to compete on averages, not one-to-one. My guess is, on average, most companies do a pretty good job. And yet, every one of us have relationships where we're in that trusted advisor zone, and we have other ones in an area where we call transactional vendors. And so, on average, we're pretty good. 
yet it doesn't matter what the average thinks. Again, this matters if you have the opportunity to interact with your clients. Uh, let me go back to Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola shouldn't care what Tom Cates thinks. You know, at the end of the year, I'm maybe worth 100 bucks a year to them. And so they should do exactly what they're doing, build their brand, make their product accessible, treat me like the average segment that I am. On the other hand, if I had happened to be the head soft drink buyer at Walmart, then it doesn't matter what their other 6 billion people think. It matters exactly what I think, one-to-one. -one. And so as you're looking as your clients, uh, excuse me, as your listeners are looking at their own client base, odds are the 80-20 rule applies. 80% of their revenue comes from 20% of their clients and ask themselves, are they treating that 20% as the individuals that they really are? Are they building that sales equity, that kind of relationship where they become the trusted advisor? Because we see all kinds of great things. Um, in the technology space, three and a half times the share of spending. Financial services, four times the tenure. Even simple things like what we call first call and last look. When they have a problem, who do they call first? And if they have to put something out to bid, who gets the last look on a bid? It goes to the people they want to do business with. And so at Sales Equity, we've built a process and a tool to help identify, are you the trusted advisor? And we break it down into six specific dimensions. Oh, okay. And, uh, how does it work? I mean, um, I'm, I'm a business. Uh, how do you use your tool? On a, by a computer? How does it work? It's very simple. It's all web-based. It's a SaaS-based model, so you only pay for what you use. And we have a patented, we've actually gotten two patents on our modeling techniques to go out and measure how your buyer really thinks. We took some research that came out of Harvard University about a decade and a half ago on not trying to measure satisfaction, rather trying to measure motivation. It's not whether you satisfy your clients, because frankly, there are an awful lot of providers out there. It's a very competitive world, any one of which could probably satisfy your clients. The interesting question is, are they motivated to be doing business with you, to be your trusted advisor? And so we take this and we break it down into six areas. The labels are not terribly important, but let me give your listeners kind of the feel of what we define a professional relationship between two business people. The first two are what we call the satisfiers. They are integrity and competency. Integrity is does your buyer believe that you're reliable, dependable, that you're going to do what you promise? Competency is does your buyer believe you have the people and the products and the skills to do what you promised? But again, all you can really do is disappoint somebody there. They paid you to deliver a quality product on time, on budget. It's like what I say, what do you, what do you say to the umpire who calls a good baseball game? Nothing. Someone, nothing, right. Mel Clem, uh, Mel Clem, the famous umpire, said uh, the, uh, his best day is when nobody noticed him. That's exactly it, right? That's what integrity and competency is about. You never notice the umpire until he blows a call. And for many of us in business, we only get noticed when we screw up, when a delivery is late, when a product doesn't work, when a bill gets sent inaccurate. That's when our clients notice. And so... You can only lose points on those two. You can't gain any points. If you want to create 
that kind of motivating relationship with someone, the other four dimensions are really critical. There's an area we call recognition, which is does your buyer believe you treat them like an individual or do you treat them like a number? There's an area we call proactivity, which is does your buyer think you're looking out for their best interest, ensuring they're not going to encounter some surprise, bringing new ideas to help them do business better. Savvy's the interesting one, and savvy's kind of the key to becoming a trusted advisor. I like to define savvy as the flip side of competency, where competency is does the buyer think you know your business, whether you're an insurance broker, an accountant, an attorney, a retailer, a restaurant, an auto repair, do they, do they think you know how to do your business? Savvy is does the buyer think you know their business? And if you think about it, why would you take advice from somebody who doesn't understand your goals, your aspirations, what you're trying to achieve? The, the final sixth dimension is what we call chemistry. And that's the area around do we work well together, do we communicate well, do we kind of click? And so those six dimensions, integrity, competency, recognition, proactivity, and savvy, and chemistry, are what we measure with our sales equity tool. The cool thing is, we collect it on a one-to-one -one basis. We deliver it back to the salesperson who's responsible for that account or the account manager right to their desktop. And then the really fascinating thing is, let's say again, let's say, Don, you're my client and I'm your account manager or account representative. Sales equity would send you this web-based survey. It's got these interesting questions about motivation. It comes back to me and I get an email that says, hey, Tom, one of your best clients, Don, just gave you some feedback. Do you want to see what he said? And I said, yeah, he's worth uh, $10,000 a year or 100000 or a million dollars a year to me. He's important. I click the link, and the software says, Tom, before I show you what Don said, tell me what you think Don's going to say. And it makes me answer all the same questions in a self-assessment. Oh, Don's going to say, I'm really good at this. I do this all the time. And then it shows me what I call our blind spots, areas where I think I'm doing really well with you, so I'm not trying any harder. Meanwhile, you're not getting what you need. You're starting to look somewhere else for a better supplier. This is a relationship that's doomed to fail because I'm missing some signals in here. And so now for the first time, I'm seeing what you're really believing. And it's not some manager telling me I got to do a better job with Don. It's not some corporate trainer saying, hey, I got to do a better job with Don. In a sense, it's me telling myself. And so the final piece is, the system will spit out a customized tactic plan for you that says, hey, Tom, next time you're done, try these three things because we know these are the things that are going to help you improve your relationship with Don. Improve your relationship. He considers you to be more of a trusted advisor. He retains you more. He buys more. He refers you more. Organic growth happens. How was that? Very good. Uh, I love this program when the guests do all the talking. Uh, we have uh, 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 three things uh, before we go to our next guest, because I'd like you to stay on and listen to him, uh, because I, uh, sure. he, he has a fascinating product and as um, uh, a simple solution to a vexing problem to a lot of people. But three things first, uh, Tom, where can people reach you and your company? Sure. Uh, the easiest way is on salesequity.com. And it's spelled just the way it sounds, S-A-L-E-S-E-Q-U-I-T-Y, salesequity.com. You've got my contact information on there. Um, I'm also coming out with a book this fall 
on the sales equity concept and all of these kind of methodologies. And so if people are interested, they can pre-register and they'll get a couple chapters right now from that uh, process. Well, well, that's interesting because my next question was, we're also coming out with a book um, this fall called um, a Recalculating. Um, and, uh, it's for a small business and to, uh, to help them grow their company. And we're inviting experts like yourself to con- contribute um, a thousand-word uh, summary uh, of their thoughts on it. I want to... Um, I'm hoping you'll consider coming in and pro- providing that uh, because what you just talked about was absolutely fascinating. I'd, I'd love to. I've uh, I've actually contributed to a couple books in the past, and as I said, this is my first foray into writing my own book, so I'd love to work with you on yours. That would be fantastic. Okay. Well, have your uh, um, associate uh, contact me. We'll get we'll get going on that. Okay. That sounds great. Fantastic. Okay, now our next guest, hopefully he's gotten through the Lincoln Tunnel. <laughs> and, hmm. Oh, there we go. Jar- That's great. Jared Green. Jared, are you on? Uh, yes, I am. Don, thank you so much. And, and Tom, thank you as well. I've been listening the entire time I've been going through the Lincoln Tunnel. I'm going to take you off uh, speakerphone now on the, the, uh, the parking deck. Guys, uh, I, I really appreciate it. Uh, and, Tom, you have some fantastic advice. I'd love to, to uh, use your tool and kind of report back on how it works for uh, for me in lots of different ventures that I'm involved in. It sounds like it's a, a great tool for someone who may or may not have someone in their lives to give them good feedback on how to be a good relationship manager. And... Uh, I'd love to take it first, Ben. That'd be great. You're absolutely right. We often refer to sales equity as a virtual sales coach because it fills a a real gap where people don't often have either the tools or the process to get the kind of coaching they need. Well, I I work – most of the time I work on my own. I work with a lot of subcontractors, and it's really easy for me to get uh, blinder focused on what I'm doing and assume that I know the best answer to the problem that I'm solving. And relationship-wise, sometimes you just have to, you know, keep plugging along. And if you don't have someone to tell you where you need to improve, you don't improve. Um, So I I like the concept of it. Uh, Now I'd love to try it out. Fantastic. uh, I'll I'll tell you a little bit about myself and uh, why – I'm assuming Don has invited me on the show. I'm a career business strategist. Uh, I went to Duke undergrad. I was a public policy major. I left. I joined Ernst & Young as a strategic business advisor. And uh, then I joined Capgemini as a business strategy analyst. And for about seven years after I went to business school, I went to business school at Emory, I was director of strategy for the largest collectibles auction house in the world called Heritage Auctions based in Dallas. And I was director of business strategy there. And after I left the auction world, I started working more volunteering as a mentor for Techstars Incubator. Uh, This is a technology incubator for early stage technology businesses. Um, 
and started investing in a handful of early stage startups. And I've had uh, I've had some limited success and several failures. Uh, my my picking is not as good as I would uh, have hoped, um, but I did start a business of my own while working with the startups, and fortunately that business uh, has been doing very well lately. And the concept was brought to me by a neighbor, uh, a neighbor who knew that I was in, involved in commercializing business. He said, I've got another neighbor. This was on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. He said, I've got a neighbor who has this concept for croquis, but for earbuds. And I said, hmm, that sounds interesting. I know a lot of uh, U.S. citizens use earbuds in the gym, on the subway, everywhere in New York. You see someone with earbuds falling off of them. And I thought, really, I'd like to meet this guy. Let's see if we can do business together. Uh, long story short, I met a fellow named Bill Woodward, a wonderful guy, salt of the earth, um, and very design-focused maker, uh, part of the those kind of a revolution in this country called the, the maker revolution, where people design innovations on existing concepts, and, and Bill is definitely a maker. Um, and we started talking about his concepts. He showed me a few prototypes, and we ended up uh, going to Kickstarter uh, for a crowdfunding campaign to get the product off the ground. Uh, this was about a year, a year and a half ago. In 30 days, we raised $17,000 from 600 backers around the world. Um, and then July of last year, we started shipping. And since July, we've sold over 10,000 units uh, of our product called Budstraps, which are essentially croquis for earbuds. And we signed our largest client about a month ago, uh, which is Amazon's company, Audible. Um, I'm actually working on the order right now, uh, heading into our sewing shop in Manhattan uh, to, uh, to work with the staff there, and ideally we'll be delivering tomorrow. But I am happy to talk about any of the pieces and parts of creating the business, uh, crowdfunding, working with China, working on Alibaba, uh, and working with domestic production. So, Don, Tom, well, ask away. Well, Tom, uh, I ask you, um, uh, uh, why don't you go through your process, because I think it will be very uh, illuminating to our audience. Sure. Um, this is a, So this is an interesting one, as we talked about. You've got kind of a new product that nobody else has. So your immediate solution or your immediate challenge, obviously, is to get some customers. And sounds like you're uh, already finding some channels and some ways to get this out. And so that's fantastic. You're in the acquisition phase. Um, you're going to yeah. need to start converting many of those customers into raving fans, right? And so you're going to start transitioning into both retention and expansion of the relationships. Um, and so it's a fascinating example of what many companies start off as, particularly new businesses, of how do I begin to manage? I've now got people at two ends of the spectrum. I'm still trying to acquire customers, and yet I don't want to be churning through customers on the back end. Is that correct? Is that kind of where you guys are at? Absolutely. We have a product that 
people have found uh, through running buddies or friends of theirs. And what we're finding now is people are coming back for a second and third product. Uh, they want another set of bud straps for work, uh, one for the car, and one for their runs. So they don't have to worry about whether it's clean uh, or whether there's one around to wear around their neck while they're doing whatever they're doing. So, yeah, we want to cultivate the relationship and make it more than just a one-time purchase. Our product is a 9.95 product, so it's relatively inexpensive. And uh, we're focusing on, on improving the sales channels um, and also cultivating retention. Exactly. And my guess is you mentioned Amazon Audible as a big customer. Um, it sounds like a kind of a product where you could actually get some very, very large uh, distribution partners as customers. Um, if not, uh, I'm thinking kind of the branders or kind of the promotional space people, um, where, again, you might have almost a bifurcated model, kind of the, the retail, as well as how do I get shipments of thousands of these things at a time. That's right. Uh, we are in the promotional space. We just that's that's how um, that's one of the reasons why Audible came to us um, is mm. recognizing that this would be a way to uh, connect with customers. We carry for Audible. Uh, we have eight different brand impressions on the back of the straps. Now I can't tell you more about it because that campaign is about to release. So uh, right. you'll find out more about that hopefully through Ad Week and other publications in the marketing world. But, yes, brands uh, are looking at bud straps as a way to carry their message to consumers. So we've got a very large business-to-business model, and then we've got a business-to-consumer model where we're selling on Amazon through our website, budstraps.com, eBay, and then we're going into some new uh, retailers online like Newegg, uh, and a few others. And so if I were to look at your business and, you know, kind of let me test a few ideas or hypotheses, if I were to break it down into those three equities, product equity, brand equity, and sales equity, uh, I would think the product equity is relatively tough to compete on because probably anybody else could knock your product off and call it something else. Um, it's probably tough to, to maintain that. So, you know, keeping your shipments in stock, keeping your clients happy um, is going to be key so they don't have to find a secondary supplier of this. But it does feel like you have an opportunity to build a brand equity um, through your brand that you're building right now. The challenge, as you said, in the promotional world, people are going to want to put their brands on that, which may mean building more sales equity in time with your channel partners that you become their trusted advisor in terms of helping people get their brands out and helping them get their messages out um, while you're still trying to work the retail channel to keep the individuals and building your brand equity there. So to my earlier story, you've got both the cans of Coke to Tom Cates and the warehouses of Coke to the head soft drink buyer challenge in front of you, it feels like. Yeah, I, I would agree with you. Um, I think for the time being, we do uh, we do have our brand equity um, being extended by our brand partners. Fortunately, Audible is allowing us to put our brand uh, on the packaging that they're doing with us, and we also have a utility patent and a trademark 
um, in play. So we're we're sort of tightly controlling where we can and uh, protecting our name and and the product utility. Uh, but I, I I think that where we can, where it makes sense, and we have partners whose brand will elevate our brand, it's important to do joint ventures like we're doing with Audible. Fortunately, they have a, a company that makes audiobooks, and when you listen to an audiobook, you're typically on earbuds or headphones. And the combination of the two products tells the story of our product very efficiently. So we wouldn't necessarily go to Colgate and ask it, uh, Colgate if they would partner on a butt straps rollout. But with a product like Audible that delivers both a message for Audible but also tells the story of how to use our product, we're very happy to do partnerships that create a, a good brand story for us as well. That's fantastic. I love that idea. I love this program. I got all I have to do is shut up. Uh, <laughs> um, well, let Don, me ask you, you. you brought good talent together. I think it it makes it easier to have a conversation. Um, you know, one of the questions I have for Tom is when we're when we're working with a, a corporate client, a lot of times um, there are, it's difficult to get the time uh, from a potential client, and you have to know what sort of pressure uh, the buyer on the other side is under. I, I'm curious what sort of coaching you would give me if I'm calling to a director of brand strategy or director of marketing in a major corporation to get on their schedule uh, to lead in. My gut says call or I would try to get someone to make a warm introduction, um, but in lieu of that, I would probably cold call and send an email at the same time with some information on our product. Ask if we could send out a sample and talk with them about how it extends their brand message. Are there yeah, I mean, ways you that have many of the they, same challenges a lot of folks do about how do I get in the door? And you're absolutely right. You know, the, the obvious one is just start with the warm introduction, the referral, wherever you can get that. Once you've kind of exhausted those channels, now it's down to a little more creativity. Um, I almost wonder if you can't – I love your idea of sending out a sample. Um, you might want to do that for specific targeted folks. Um, if you were to pick another handful of partners and get them printed up ahead of time and send them out as part of a promotion to them, um, feels like it could be relatively low cost. Obviously, anytime you get into kind of packaging and all that, it starts raising the cost a little bit. But that combined with a, uh, a, uh, a sort of a follow-up process. The other where, area where I've seen it interesting, and, and you've got kind of a, a very interesting product here that would be intriguing that I think you could get pretty good response from, is offer to bring the earbud, the uh, bud straps with you in exchange for the meeting or the phone call. Um, maybe That's even a great package. idea. Yeah, kind of the teaser is, Hey, and I, I'm trying to think. There's probably some clever line around. Listen to us, hear us, hear us better without it becoming disruptive. I don't know. Um, that's for more the ad copy folks to figure out. But you've got an interesting audio channel kind of theme 
that we'll exchange, you know, one ear for the other or listening in exchange for listening to us for 10 minutes, we'll make sure you can listen to your tunes forever or something like that. Sure. I think there's a, there's a clever tact in there somewhere and, and yeah. a one-liner that, that sells it. But I like the idea of, of using the sample as a as a bait to get a telephone conversation or get an in-person meeting. Yeah. Um, Something I, I think that's... Well, well Jared, Jared, let me ask you, uh, why don't you tell your audience how you came to be on this show? Because this is another way of getting the audience. Oh, sure. Uh, and, and Don, thank you again for, for tapping us to be on your show. Uh, we were a part of a media roundup uh, from a company called Consumer Products Agency out of California. <clears throat> we got a, a notification from a, a very good contact of mine, a, um, a celebrity named Rain Haynes out of Houston, who said, there's a neat opportunity in Manhattan to go and pitch to members of the press if you want to be a part of it. Uh, Huffington Post will be there. Cosmopolitan will be there. Uh, New York Times. And uh, Don, you walked in. Um, you came over. You talked to me about the product a little bit, and uh, we talked about sort of the path we followed to get to where we are today. And that's really what led us to be here today on your show. True, and, and that's the showcase that that a lot of people that we use a lot to fill up these programs. But more importantly, um, you followed up. And I would like to get to a point and talk to Tom and both of you about. If I go to a trade show and I hand out 100 cards, or as sometimes I even say, here, I want you on my program, I'll be lucky if seven people will follow up. And of all That's the amazing. people... The, isn't that... That's um, I'm the press. I'm, I'm walking up there. I'm the press. Okay. And maybe they don't like me. I don't know. But um, uh, of the, all the people at that show so far, Jared is the only one who's followed up, and I handed out 13 uh, similar things that Jared had. Don, I want to tell you a quick story. I was 18. Uh, I was between, I think, my freshman and sophomore year in college, and I was working uh, for – the university dining services in their marketing department. And I had this idea that I wanted to sell erasable whiteboards and I was going to sell squares of advertising on the whiteboards and give them out to the incoming class of freshmen. So I started calling businesses all around Durham uh, in North Carolina. And I started saying, I've got this whiteboard idea. I'd like you to buy an advertising spot. And if they weren't there, I left a message. And this was my first time ever trying to sell something, and no one called me back. And then I started choosing the times that I called more specifically, and occasionally I would get someone on the line, um, but I learned that no one was ever going to call me back. So I learned how to tailor my pitch to a 15 to 30-second pitch right when I got a person on the line. I didn't even say my name. I just said what I was selling. And that might get a conversation that would last 60 seconds. And then I learned I needed to get off my tail and I needed to show up in these businesses and they needed to meet me. They needed to shake my hand. They needed to know who they were dealing with. And that's when I started making my first sales. Um, ultimately, I, I filled the board 
Uh, I made five thousand dollars off the project. Uh, well, five thousand in revenues. I think I made uh, twenty. $2,500 or $3,000 to pay for my computer for the next year. Um, but I learned so much about the sales mentality and how much, to, to Tom's point, how important trust is in the dynamic of, of sales and follow-up. So many times, I, I, once you get a commitment, it doesn't necessarily mean the sale is done. Uh, you could get a yes, and if you don't have a signed, uh, a signed, uh, signed agreement or a check, it's, it might as well be written on toilet paper. Um, so that follow-up is crucial. And if you're just getting into business and you're thinking that once you hear yes, it's done, or once you get a person on the phone, it's done, it's not. Those follow-ups are so critical. Um, sometimes it's three or four calls that will make a sale, but I'm sure Tom will tell you the statistics are much higher. Uh, typically, it's 10 to 12 calls before you'll get a sale or interactions of some sort. Um, Tom, do you have any numbers on that? Yeah, I mean, I've seen, uh, and I, I couldn't agree more with you, Jared, that the, I've seen numbers of 9 to 10, the average number of touch points it takes before you get any kind of movement from your buyer. Um, and I've also seen numbers that most people give up after one or two. And so yeah. they send an email maybe they'll send a follow-up email, or if you're really lucky, they'll do a voicemail call, and then they'll assume nothing, therefore they move on. You know, I, I sit here and I'll get 200 emails today, and if I'm lucky, I might get through half of them. And so right. the, the, the world we live in is just so tough, and I think you're absolutely right, is that the challenge is most people give up long before – uh, they are ever get an attraction with your clients. And the second point you made, I couldn't agree more with, again, the whole idea of sales equity was around, particularly in these kind of business-to-business markets, even something as small as, look, I want to put your advertising on my whiteboard here. That kind of business-business transaction, you need that human contact. People need to see who you are. You need to build up that kind of sales equity, those different dimensions if you didn't, we'd just hang a sign out there that said 1-800-BUY-STUFF, and people would buy it. That's not the way business gets done. They need to be see you in the face. They need to understand, this is somebody I can trust. Ideally, this is someone I can share my goals and aspirations with and ask them for some advice. And that's a, that's a very different kind of relationship than a simple transaction. And so I think you're absolutely right. This is where sometimes too early young salespeople, new salespeople – they give up way, way too soon, and they don't invest the time to really build a relationship that could last years and years and years and be hugely profitable and valuable to both. Well, look, I, let me inter- I found in – sorry, Don, go ahead. No, you first. Guess first. Well, I was going to say that, that I found that the people that I go back to, um, whether it's for questions or future dealings, are the people who I feel – who are sensitive to their employees and also sensitive to the customer. I'm not, I'm not interested in working with someone who is all facts and figures and no soft touch. And I think that's pretty universal. People work not just for a living, but they also work for satisfaction. And the people that they deal with are an extension of their lives. So 
when you're talking with someone, if you're trying to make a sale or even working with someone who, who you're selling to uh, or who's buying from you, showing them a little bit of your, your own person, of your own sensitivities, um, your own interests is a great way to make a connection and cultivate that relationship. And be sincere. I mean, don't, don't tell someone uh, something that's not true about you, or, but connect like you would connect with anyone. Great point. So, John, to you. Well, uh, I was going to ask a, a question. I'll start with Tom. If, uh, uh, and I happen to believe, but I, I happen to be a little older. Uh, than, we all seem to be um, uh, older guys, but uh, this younger generation uh, seems to think that you can sell everything via a digital experience. And um, you know we're bombarded constantly with this digital world. Yet, yet what you're saying is uh, the digital kind of uh, 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 truncates the uh, personal. Uh, uh, any thoughts on this? Yeah, you know, I have this saying I like to give my folks of, where do you play and what do they say? And by that, what I mean is, if you think about the process of solving a problem or seizing an opportunity from your client's perspective. What do they do? Well, first they have to figure out they have a problem or an opportunity. Then they've got to figure out how big it is. What's it worth to solve? What are my options for solving it? Who can help me solve it? Uh, do I need to put out an RFP? Who are the possible vendors? How do I select one? Then I actually got to go and do whatever it is, solve that problem, seize that opportunity, and then I want to measure whether it worked. If you play way down at the far right-hand side of that value chain where they've already figured out what's the solution to their problem, then yes, you can handle a transaction through electronic means. But think of all the value that you've left on the table by not being involved in all those early steps. The trusted advisor is in their early proactively helping them understand what are their problems and opportunities. Hey, I understand, you know, Jared, you're trying to get into some new partnerships. Have you considered doing this, right? And then talking to them about what are different ways you're being a real counsel, trusted advisor to that client to which you can capture value for. And if it does go to an offering, then it really, nine times out of ten, it's going to go to you. You bypass any competitors. The automated transaction, that's the last piece of the puzzle. And so that's where do you play. And then what's interesting is we always ask, what do they say? We've seen a really interesting phenomenon. We capture a couple open-ended questions in our process, which is usually tell us something your team does well and they should keep doing. Tell us something you'd like to see them change or do different. Interestingly enough, those who are in that trusted advisor zone their clients name names. They say, Don is fantastic. They use emotive words. I love working with Jared and his team. When you're a little bit of click below that, an area we call predisposed, kind of a relationship running on momentum, they don't name names. They talk about the product or they talk about the company. You know, Budstraps is the best product out there. But it's not that same emotional connection. A click below that, when they think you're just kind of average, you do a perfectly fine job, they use exactly what I call the F word in business, which is fine, not the F word you're thinking <laughs> of. 
right? You never want to be thought of as just fine because vendors are fine, right? And so that's what we look for is where are you invited to play? Everybody will make time for you if they think you can help them. It's when they don't make time for you upstream, it's because they don't think you have anything to add up there. You haven't earned that sales equity. You haven't earned the right to play up there. And so where do you play and what do they say? Two quick tools for your listeners to try to gauge where are they. Are you way upstream, being the trusted advisor, or are you downstream, taking orders, being a perfectly fine transactional vendor? Hmm. So, um, so if I may uh, respond to, to the same question, we deal with millennials uh, on a daily basis, and we've chosen to list our product on Amazon, which is what you do when you're selling a consumer product in the retail space. Uh, and the statistics are important because we have a five-star quality rating on Amazon. Um, we have many reviews that are glowing reviews about how the product works and is used. And consumers look to Amazon for feedback on, on how the product works, and they look at, at crowdsourced reviews to, to gauge whether one product is better than another product. So in order for us to be competitive – in this space, we have to sell online. Uh, we could sell direct to retailers, but what would ultimately happen is at some point a consumer or that retailer would sell our product online and we'd have no control over it. So this way we control our online presence. So it's, it's important for us to do that. And also the, the voice of the millennial is one that is – authentic to millennials. So the best way to talk to a millennial is through one of their friends. You want to get as many reviews from people within their sphere group as you possibly can to prove to them that this product has been tested by people they know or people who are similar to people that they know. Facebook has this really neat marketing tool. Um, I don't remember exactly what the name of it is, but if you want to advertise to a group that it's called a look-alike crowd, um, if you want to advertise to a group that looks like fans of your product page on Facebook, you can choose look-alike, and you can you can change certain demographics within it. But if you want to extend your reach beyond the current fans that you already have, you'll choose this look-alike audience, and that's a great way for you to talk to your audience and extend the reach of your audience. And for me, what I, I like to do is I like to get bloggers who are blogging in uh, the millennial space to talk about our product, and then I repost it on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram, and it's a great way to uh, get our audience motivated and get them talking about how the product has been good for them. Brilliant, brilliant. I love it. Well, we're getting close to the end. I just want to uh, – uh, I used to work for McGraw-Hill, and there used to be a great poster of an old man sitting in a – of a uh, tough-looking boss sitting in a chair, and he says, I don't know you. I don't know your product. I don't know your company. Now sell me. Uh, <laughs> uh, 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 you think about it. Um, anyway – 
Um, well, we're going to start with uh, Tom. Tell us again about uh, your um, company and you and how people can reach you, because I, after this, I'm sure somebody will want to talk with you. Sure, I'd love to speak with your listeners, and uh, they can reach me and my company through salesequity.com, uh, spelled just the way it sounds, S-A-L-E-S-E-Q-U-I-T-Y, salesequity.com. And there's lots of resources on there, um, white papers, et cetera, or feel free to reach out to me directly at tcates, that's T-C-A-T-E-S, at salesequity.com. And so either one, I'd be happy to talk to your listeners and provide any counsel and advice I can. Well, we definitely want you to contribute to our um, book, and so have someone uh, contact me as soon as possible, okay? I will do that. And, uh, Jared, uh, I hope you've learned something. Uh, we certainly have learned something today. How do people reach you, your product, et cetera? Absolutely. Uh, so, firstly, I would encourage anyone who has any questions, contact me directly. My email is jared, J-A-R-E-D, at budstraps.com. And the website is budstraps.com. It's bud as in earbud and straps, S-T-R-A-P-S, dot com. Uh, and you can order product direct from us. You can order it direct from Amazon. With Amazon Prime, you get free shipping. Uh, and we would uh, we'd love to engage any of your listeners in conversation. Thank you both for very illuminating our uh, hour. It's really been fun. Thank you. Really appreciate it, Don. Thank you, Don. And, Tom, nice talking with you. Yeah, and I'm, I'm on your site right now. I might order a pair of butt straps for myself. <laughs> I appreciate it. Thank you. I'll get a pair out to you. I will be in Sounds contact with you. Thank you for listening tonight. All of our guests are invited because they offer actionable advice to our audience. They do not pay to join us, but rather demonstrate their capacity for helping our audience add profits. Thank you for listening, and we'll be here again next week with other experts to talk about ways to improve your profit picture. Remember.